Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview Podcast, October 12th, 2015, the Tory Eurosceptics and Tunisia Peace Prize edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics, the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham, joined as usual by my co-hosts Kristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello Kristalia. Hello Adam, hello world. And Scott Lucas, a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing Scott? I am still standing, which is good after a busy day. Awesome. Our two topics this week. First, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee passed over more hotly tipped favourites to bestow its gift upon a coalition of civil society organisations in Tunisia, or Tunisia, if we're uh, reaching out to the United States audience here, who by all accounts have played a key role in guiding that country along the many obstacled road towards constitutional democracy since 2011. We'll talk about whether the award may be intended not to celebrate mission accomplished, but to try and shore up achievements in imminent danger of collapse. Second, in the UK, an exultant Conservative Party held its annual conference, firm in the belief that the woes of the opposition will allow it to remain in government for a decade at least. But with a referendum on Britain's EU membership looming in 2017, we contemplate the likelihood that this may be the calm before the storm as far as David Cameron and his vying would-be successors are concerned. Onward. In 2011, the North African state of Tunisia kicked off what was to become the Arab Spring when protesters overthrew President Zine El Abidine Ben Ali, I think that's all the right parts said the right way, in the first of a wave of topplings of authoritarian governments across the Arab world. Last Friday, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, which is appointed by the Norwegian Parliament, I now know, picked the so-called Dialogue Quartet to receive the award for 2015. That's a collection of what The Guardian called unionists, employers, lawyers and human rights activists who were instrumental in keeping the constitutional process on track after the assassination of two prominent politicians in 2013. The broader narrative of the Arab Spring has fallen on hard times over recent years with a military coup in Egypt, a brutal civil war in Syria and something like anarchy in Libya. In Tunisia, the political process has been under strain as Islamists, secularists and remnants of the old regime vie to secure their positions, not helped by a number of serious terrorist outrages, including the murder of 38 people most British at a tourist resort in June. So is this peace prize recognition of a job well done or an effort to bolster the prestige of the forces of compromise at a time when their good work looks set to unravel? Cristala, help me out. Does this prize tell me that I should be buying or selling shares in Tunisia's future hopes? Adam, I say keep your shares for now and see, see, see how they go over time. Let them level out. Um, I think there are a few things to say about, mention when we talk about the Tunisian context in this and the awarding of um, the Nobel Peace Prize. And as you say, the, they were really an outlier um, in some pretty interesting List yeah, in the pretty interesting talk about Merkel, talk about John Kerry and his Iranian counterpart. There right. was talk about the Pope as well. Right. Um, Much discussed here last Scott's week. Scott's favourite person. Not to him. Um, so, so that so to nominate the so to award this to the Tunisian Quartet uh, really is an award for hope. And and as you point out, I think that it's. It comes in the context of a lot of discussion about the failure of the Arab Spring. And there's been most of the discussion recently about the Arab Spring has been a lot of chest beating and a lot of woe is us and look at how revolution turns bloody and the world is horrendous. And it is. But I think what it brings to what it does is bring to our attention, what Tunisia does is bring to our attention the idea that transitions take a long time, um, that this is a struggle 
that mm. democracy isn't something that is unpacked in five minutes and then done and dusted. Well, like so, 10 to 15? Or? Yeah, yeah, 20 minutes if, you, if you're a little bit slack. So Slow-cooked democracy. <laughs> You're not, you're not helping me. You're asking me about your opinion and you're coming in with slow-cooked democracy, Adam Quinn. <laughs> you know me, triteness is a skill. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is that I think that the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize was highlighting that this kind of struggle, this kind of change is hard and it takes time, right? So it brings this idea of the, of the Arab uprisings into a different kind of perspective and it gives it hope. And what we need to remember, I think, is that Tunisia, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on regionally, internally and globally that, um, that the Peace Prize is speaking to. And at the global level, we're talking about the battles, various battles against ISIS. At the regional level, we're talking about, um, we're talking about Libya next door. We're talking about the kind of the entire kind of MENA um, revolutions, uprisings, collapsing. And then at the internal level, we're talking about this struggle for democracy and change that's that's been ongoing for the last kind of four or five years and the internal power politicking that you're talking about. But I think what's important is that this this achievement of the quartet and the and the achievement of really the Tunisian revolution sits against all of that kind of grim context and what they're trying to do in awarding this I think is stopping the backsliding of um, of this of this government of the Tunisian government to kind of old ways and the old regime so which has been destabilizing the process so I think that's kind of the the shape what I worry about there are a few things that are going on inside Tunisia that are important, and that's kind of a destabilised truth and reconciliation process as well that that needs to be kind of shored up, and then and then changes to um, media laws which are cracking down on, on 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 freedoms to speak. But what I worry about with this is that the Nobel Peace Prize might be used by the Asepsi government to whitewash what they're doing internally. Say so we wouldn't be getting this if it wasn't all yeah. fine. And look look how amazing the country is doing and all of this, including our backsliding, including our losing some of our kind of hard-fought democratic kind of legitimacy in some of some of these legislative key legislative changes over the course of the last five years is is part of the struggle. So it legitimizes the the, the changes that they've been doing which are not democratic. Um, as part of the struggle towards the broader struggle towards democracy, that's what kind of concerns me. Mm. Scott, any light to shed for me? Interesting that it, it's got to be a sign of the Nobel again offering a prize because of hope. I mean, they have done this on numerous occasions. Perhaps the most famous stroke infamous would be in 2009 when they gave it to Barack Obama in the expectation that he might do good things. Mm. It was uh, an audacious hope. Yeah, a, a very audacious hope. And he didn't necessarily fulfill all that hope at that time, uh, to say the least. In this case, however, it's not just hope, but I think they can point to at least a partial achievement. I mean, Christelle is right. Revolutions are always works in progress. Indeed, actually defending rights, defending political legitimacy is always a work in progress. And it's not as if there's a completely unvarnished record of progress here, that the question about control of the media, about 
control not only of traditional media but of the internet about what is perceived as possible crackdowns on youth organizations, for example. That's always the fear there. And, and I think the fear that possibly some people are talking about is that there could be some type of coalition between remnants of the old regime, the Ben Ali regime, with elements of newer parties that would come by and say, look, in order to maintain power, we're basically going to try to shut everyone out. Hasn't happened yet, though. Hasn't happened yet. I mean, a couple of things that are interesting off of Tunisia that would mean, for example, there were periods where you're talking about the assassinations of prominent figures, including politicians, that threatened to put the country into the type of uprising that we've seen elsewhere. And it didn't happen because there were enough groups within the countries that said, no, you've got to maintain a functioning parliament. You've got to maintain what appears to be the legitimacy of, a leg- of an executive, albeit one that has question marks over it. And you basically have to not let this devolve into factions who are fighting each other using arms. Right? When you had the killing of the tourist in, uh, in earlier this year in Sousse, that could have been a moment where they said the country is being overrun by the Islamic State. Now, in retrospect, it looks like you had someone who was more of an Islamic State sympathizer who had armed himself up and created this event to destabilize the country. The security services held enough that you didn't see that happen. And then go back to the list of the quartet you're talking about. Just the recognition of civil society groups, of unionists and others, is the hope, but to an extent the achievement that people have a buy-in into the process. It's not like unionists are being shut out. It's not like civil society people are being shut out. And that's what I want to hold to for this reason, because it does come down to comparisons. Let's be honest here. In part, you look at Libya next door, where you have competing militias, competing factions. You can argue that country was already riven by divisions and artificially held together by Gaddafi, which makes it different from Tunisia. Fair enough. But artificially held together is better than not at all, I guess many would say. Well, I'm not going to comment on whether or not it's better that Gaddafi's gone or not. I'll leave it for that. What I'm saying is, is that Tunisia, in fact, the fact is, is that you haven't seen that, that divide, geographic divide, ethnic divide, religious divide across all of the country. Let but me it, just interrupt by saying that I think that it's not immediately apparent to the outside world of those very real divisions, but I think they definitely exist, potentially, especially the geographic divide, which is also economic. So that they're definitely... If you could explain to me the main geographic divide. Well, I think, that, I think that the South particularly is much poorer than the, than the, the centre, if yeah. you're talking about Tunis, and the coastal tourist areas of that's going to change. So the geographic and the, um, and the economic divide are very, very clear, and it's been those areas that have also supported these kind of the, the bringing back in of the old guard. Yeah. But that's but those divides basic primarily on economic development. You're arguing, yeah, yeah, and old gripes and a feeling of disenfranchisement yeah. and a feeling of being ignored by the process of change. All of that accepted, all of that accepted. But in the case of Libya, what you saw, for example, is, is that the divides weren't just economic. The divides were, for example. Along countries, for example, Eastern separatism as a complete movement to break away from Tripoli, the idea that the South was completely different in sure. makeup than the North and so on. And Tunisia, I don't think, has... I think the economic problem is crucial here. Tunisia has got to continue to show political progress but also economic progress. Completely agree with that. But I'm going to still hold on to hope for this reason, and that is the Libyan case is interesting. Egypt's the one I look to. Mm. Egypt was one where, for whatever reason you want to argue, there was no space given for the revolution to have a chance in 2011, 2012. And so the default position that, that went to is, is that the military came back into power. I mean, it, it's, it's President Sisi, but it's actual General Sisi who's ruling the country with elements of the old Mubarak elite 
involved. Mm-hmm. Now, we can say the elements of the old guard that are there in Tunisia, but it hasn't happened to the extent that it has in Egypt. No, it hasn't. But, it, but That's it the caution. Happening. I agree to you. That's the caution. And my question to you in debating this is whether the hope that the Nobel expresses in that type of what you might call new politics, civil society groups, youth groups, lawyers, unionists, whether that is going to be strong enough to prevent a reversion to the old networks of power that we saw in the Ben Ali period. I think that those that reversion is already happening. Okay. Has happened, has been happening, particularly over the last year. I think there have been quite very quiet uh, reversions. I think the question, to reframe your question, I think it's a question of whether those groups can harness the Nobel Express, as you call it, yeah. to very savvily shine light on those on those kind of very quiet. Um, um, backslides of policy and practice. So I think that, and I do think that Tunisian civil society is very, very savvy, very savvy. So that's the, that would be the next question I have to you, is that unlike other cases where I would argue that Egyptian, uh, Egyptian activists complete respect for what they tried to do in 2011, but I think there's a bit of naivety about the organization of Egyptian civil society, the activists that were there. Syria is just a mess that's completely off the table. At this point, the activists are there, but they effectively are outside the country or basically trying to, to, to survive. Are the Tunisian civil society activists, and in the broad sense, including organized elements such as the unions, do you think they've got enough knowledge to be able to take this Nobel experience and turn it into a dialogue to keep advancing that cause of rights and responsibilities? Or do you think they'll be overwhelmed at the end by the force of the old guard? or the old system? I think speaking about Tunisian civil society, there are a number of fractures in Tunisian civil society, as happens across the board, particularly in these kind of contexts. So I think that the fractures might deepen with the awarding of this prize, or or might, or it might galvanise. So which groups might you see? I think groups that are dealing with truth and reconciliation and dealing with the past specifically, um, and not always speaking the same language as broader, the broader groups that, yeah. that have been involved in the kind of transition process. And then I think you speak about another set of civil society activists, which for me have been a really key ingredient to, to leading the transition, which is social change, um, and particularly around internet activism, net activism, actually. Okay. I guess maybe then to finish my <laughs> basically more questioning contribution, Probably I make two points. One is, is I guess maybe where I'm sort of holding to a little bit of hope is I remember a couple of years ago the prediction was it was all going to come apart because of a, ha- a hard Islamist takeover. Yeah. That the Anada party, which had been the initial party ascendant, which basically goes back to the notion of an Islamic mm-hmm. system, that they were basically going to refuse to let anybody else in the door. And the yet power. they modified themselves. They modified. That's, that was the one thing. Now, yeah. whether... Now we talk about an old guard, whether the old guard would modify. But that leads me to my second point, which is never like the label Arab Spring. Always put it in quotes because the fact is you had all that hope from all those hundreds of thousands, millions of people that organized. And the point you make is an absolute right one. Civil society groups have got to work together. Yeah. They've got to be able to deal with the fact that they're going to have differences at time, but there, there is a greater good to be pursued. And I think the Tunisian case is an interesting one as to whether that is one where you could see those groups, whether they talk about gender rights, whether they talk about rights of the media, whether they talk about rights of workers, whenever they come to a bump in the road about working together, they can overcome that and keep pressing that. I mean, that's, that's not to say that the responsibility is all on them, but I think it's going to be a key element in what's to come. Hmm. 
I, as you may have noticed, have been a little quiet because I don't have a great deal to, uh, to say that, uh, that, that uh, would be of the required standard about Tunisia. I will say two things about this story. One, I first became aware of the prize being awarded uh, when a media organization that shall remain nameless inquired whether I'll be prepared to comment on it, to which I responded, uh, I don't think that's really uh, my beat, uh, to which their, their summary of what they wanted was... Um, that uh, uh, we just want someone who really hates the Peace Prize uh, was the, uh, uh, the summary of, of what, they were, what they were looking for. So I suppose my first thought was about the Nobel Peace Prize. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Uh, because part of it, I guess, is that it seems to reward people sometimes for a very narrow area of their contributions. So you get people like Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Kissinger and whatnot getting awards because they did one thing, but obviously their broader portfolio of you know, uh, attributes, in one case, one of the most militaristic presidents in the history of the United States, in the other case... Well, you, we all, we, we, anyone who wants to Wikipedia Henry Kissinger can find that one. Should find the definition of war criminal. Yeah. So it's kind of, and then other occasions it's become, well, I, I think we might need to consult our lawyers on that one, Scott, but I almost just glossed over that without remarking on it. Maybe we should say other opinions are available. But um, uh, with regard to, to other categories, uh, you know, it's got sort of become like Time Person of the Year or something, where it seems to get awarded to large amorphous collectives or groups more than I seem to remember it did in the past. For example, like the European Union? Right, like with a hope to make some kind of I-don't-know-what <laughs> abstract peculiar statement. Which uh, would make us all Nobel laureates, let's just say. Well, I, I know that that's how, uh, how I introduce myself. I don't know about you. And the second thing about Tunisia, to take it to the level of uh, the, the crass interloper with very little area studies, it just, this and the Arab Spring more generally just reinforces to me what an unbelievably difficult operation having a state, holding a state together, managing a state in any way is. I mean, I studied the United States, as we all, mm. as we all know, and they are having... You know, something that it wouldn't be too much of an overstatement to call a constitutional crisis of sorts at the moment about how, with division of powers, you get people to have enough of a sense of what the common core of work to be done is to hold institutions together. And, you know, at least they're not uh, at risk of the entire country coming down around their ears imminently and or killing each other. So it's when I look at that and despair of how dysfunctional it is and then turn my eyes to the rest of the world and see that actually this is, you know, the kind of thing that other people can only aspire to. All I can say is whoever created states in the first place and whoever was holding them together before our current crisis of compromise and governance feather in their cap because it seems like... Nobel Peace Prize. They deserve something. Maybe I'll invent my own prize, the Adam Quinn Prize for uh, for order and stability. Uh, (laughs) Sort of gritty realist award. I think Henry Kissinger might be be, uh, inclined to put his name in the hat for that one too. Um, Anyway... That also segues us quite nicely into the next topic, speaking about water and stability. Something like that. Okay, we now turn to our regular item number of the week, where we attempt to uh, use a number as our crowbar uh, to enter into the territory of a news story that piqued our interest over the course of the last few days. Scott, what have you got for us? Number 17, which was part of the identifier for MH17, which was a flight operated by Malaysian Airlines uh, running from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur that was shot down over eastern Ukraine in 2014. Almost 300 people dying. I refer to 17 because the official report has now come out from the Dutch government uh, about the cause of the crash. And very politely and diplomatically, but still firmly, they say that it was indeed a Russian-made missile that took down that aircraft and caused that tragic loss of life. It was not a missile from any other country. 
not a missile from any other group. It was made by Russia because it is Ukrainian separatists who are likely to have had that Russian missile. Which is not a great surprise to anyone, but we needed to get this Closure. confirmed properly because the Russians have been trying to sow doubt, uh, as that is their, their want in public exactly. affairs. Which leads me to my wider point, is that this story should give us a little bit of closure on what happened. Not to say that the Ukrainian separatists necessarily intended to shoot down a civilian airliner for whatever reasons, but it was a horrible accident in what in effect was a war zone. And it was an accident which was caused in part by the Russians. And I say it because the Russians have been trying for more than a year to obscure their responsibility in eastern Ukraine, let alone this specific tragedy. And they will continue to do so by disparaging the official findings. They've already begun so. Because Russia... For better or worse, you may see what side I fall upon, is basically had a very effective organized propaganda disinformation campaign which extends from Ukraine to Syria into Asia to basically spread fog, dust, mist over events like this. They've done it with respect in this case with civilian casualties. They're doing it right now with supporting a Syrian regime by bombing civilians and rebels in, in the northwest of that country. This will not be the closure on this incident because that Russian campaign will continue. But to the extent that it could support people who say, look, when it's propaganda, you call it out and you don't shy away from calling a spade a spade. So to the extent that anyone is interested in engaging with the objective evidence assembled carefully, this is the definitive conclusion about this? This is the definitive conclusion, and it should be the one on which we base both our immediate reactions and also our skepticism and our judgment about various information and disinformation surrounding Russia and other accidents and tragedies that are to come. Crystal, la la la. Yes. What, uh, what have you got for us on the numbers front? My number of the week is 128, which mm. is the... We've come down on the numbers. Last week they were all stratospherically high. We have, but I mean, in comparison to the week before, we've come up. And right. also I've changed my geographic location. I'm moving to Turkey. So 128 is the number that rally organisers say, uh, the number of people that rally organisers organizers of a peace rally in Ankara say were killed on Saturday after two suicide bombers hit um, a peace rally. The rally was calling for an end to violence between the Turkish government and the um, Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK. And the government uh, alternatively has blamed ISIS, the PKK, the radical left, and whoever else they can think of. Mm. Um, so not only is it, a, is it a tremendous loss of life in Turkey, um, but it's, it's further fractured, I think, Turkish politics. And there's an upcoming general election on the 1st of November. Um, so there are all sorts of things playing out as a result of this, not to mention kind of media blackouts, the fact that when the um, when the bombings occurred, the government apparently locked out ambulances instead of letting them through. Seriously now? Seriously told peace. So there was a call for um, blood donations at surrounding hospitals and the government put out a, a, a counter public statement saying that we do not need any blood, everything is fine, please, nothing to see here. And I'm guessing everything was not fine. Everything was they not really fine. could have done with that blood. And many people died as a result. That is, that but, is not good. That, that, that is, I mean, I know that we talked about Turkey before on, on, on this show a few editions ago, and we weren't exactly writing love letters to, to, to the government then, but mm-hmm. that, is, uh, that is disturbing, and, and they must be very... 
uh, worried about their position if they've decided to, to go about it that way? What, 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 why would they uh, I don't know whether it's so worried recklessly. about their position or just there's an utter disregard for for human life and the divisions between respective groups are just so deep that the, that the government has taken this kind of very locked down position and it really mm. kind of like we've been talking today about the um, various revolutionary movements in the MENA mm. world and in Turkey also there's been a legacy like we spoke about of uprisings in the country and so mm. I think in part the government reaction is a reaction to activists and they perceive, they perceive these people for having been at this rally as in some sense for traitorous Yes, right. absolutely. So I think it's just each reaction that the government has, and particularly Erdogan has, is is more and more vicious and mm. is perceived as, as more and more vicious. Wow. Turkey, you are not the good guys, nope. we, by the sounds of it. Your, uh, your government, at least, your citizens sound like they could do with being treated a bit better by you. Okay, uh, so my number of the week is not really about a story uh, from this week, but it is it is about a uh, calculation device that was released this week, and the number is $5,200. There we go, the number's crept back up again. Yeah, we, we've got back up to four figures, with a comma, if you're so inclined. Um, $5,200, uh, uh, if we uh, measure it in $2,005, and we'll get to why we're doing that in a minute, because I want to give a comment, dollars. is uh, yes, US dollars, uh, is the GDP of India, mm-hmm. which for the purposes of comparison, uh, is the GDP that the United States had uh, per capita in 1881. Wow. Um, and this I learned from a... Uh, device or calculation mechanism that was up on vox.com this week which allowed you to do gdp comparisons basically taking whatever the gdp of a country was today and with a sliding graph working out at what year uh, the us gdp per head had been at the had been at the same level so i guess that's uh, um that's one that was used because India is a major and often considered to be rising power, playing catch-up, but enjoying economic successes, which serves to emphasize the distance perhaps still to go between the United States and, uh, uh, and it. For Haiti, uh, to give an example that's even more brutal, its 2013 GDP per capita was 1650 of those $2,005, uh, which was the U.S. level in 1800. Uh, which I think, obviously there are some limits on exactly how robust these things are. GDP in the United States apparently gets more difficult to measure the further you go back. Uh, And of course, even if you have limited dollars today, there are technologies that exist that you have access to that nobody did Mm -hmm. all of those years ago. But it nevertheless serves to emphasize, or certainly did for me, and I recommend anyone who wants to goes on the Vox.com website and looks it up uh, for for the benefit of the visuals. It emphasizes even at this time when we feel that there is a surge in catch-up and we're being told the number of people in poverty is falling a lot and there are rising powers and the shift of economic gravity away from the West, uh, there is still a huge amount of ground that needs to be uh, traversed before most countries, even those we consider to be successfully and quickly developing, get remotely within reach of the the level of development enjoyed by the United States and many other very developed countries. 200 years ago. Yeah. Uh, So it's obviously a fact that would be expressible in many other ways and probably is every day, but it was a way of expressing that fact that really brought it home. And I guess that's why people build these things. So uh, that's my number. And I recommend that uh, Vox.com get a few clicks out of you for it because A, it's uh, 
kind of fun to do, which I suppose is uh, the way they get you the hook, but it's also edutaining you. It's giving you some, uh, giving you some things to think about uh, as we might get carried away by other more superficial narratives. And we are all about edutainment here at this podcast. If we live for anything, it is for that. Last week, the British Conservative Party descended upon Manchester for its annual conference. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, made it clear that he intends to see through his planned programme of cuts while claiming to be the true party of Labour. Home Secretary Theresa May delivered a speech so hostile to immigrants that even the writers of the Daily Telegraph were given pause for thought, while Prime Minister David Cameron made a rhetorical lurch for the centre ground with talk of equality of opportunity and social justice that Guardian reading types like us would note seemed to sit uneasily with the substance of his government's policies. Perhaps the largest elephant in the room, however was the blue one with the ring of stars around it in the form of the European Union. The government has pledged to renegotiate elements of Britain's commitments to the Union and then put the UK's membership to the people in an in-out referendum in 2017. The Conservative Party was ravaged by internal warfare over Europe in the 1990s and many wonder if we're set for more of the same, with government ministers potentially campaigning on opposite sides of a contest that could well end up with Britain outside the EU and the Prime Minister's authority and credibility shredded. Scott, please tell me that's not going to happen, uh, or at least the uh, uh, the first bit. I could probably live with some Tory civil war, uh, but uh, what do you think? I actually don't think that we'll get a Tory civil war equivalent to what we got in the 1990s when they were debating about their relationship uh, to what then was evolving into uh, the single currency. Uh, that later tr- development of the EU coming out of the old European economic community. I think you're going to see the vast majority of the Conservative Party, in contrast to the UK Independence Party, very firmly swinging behind the yes vote. And I think that's going to be because money talks um, and BS walks, to modify my grandfather's phrase. Uh, You can take Britain out of Europe by a referendum, and if you do, it will be, if not the death knell for this country, it will be a ball and chain around this country for decades. Britain made this mistake before, and I'll be interested to see if this is a theme in the campaign. They made this mistake before in the 1950s, when they didn't come into the EC in its first incarnation. They suffered economically because of it. They then, partly because of that mistake, tried to come into the 1970s at a time when they were very much on the economic back foot. Britain, contrary to a lot of the rhetoric that comes out uh, from the anti-Europe people, has benefited economically from being part of this association. For all the frustrations of Europe, for all the frustrations of its legal mechanisms, its regulations, for all the difficulties of organizing so many nations, economically, these countries hang together or they hang separately. Um, The example of countries such as Ireland, for example, who have been within Europe and who are coming out of that now to experience growth rates, what if Ireland had been outside of Europe, whether that had been impossible would have been an interesting question. Now, do I say for certainty that you'll get a yes vote? No, I don't say it for certainty, but I would think that most businesses, the power of the city, and therefore a lot of the media coverage linked to those groups will be proclaiming they're neutral, but will be trying very subtly to say, go for a yes vote. I think a lot of institutions in this country, and for example, universities, who stand to lose big time if we come out of Europe at an intellectual level and also at a financial level, I think they will basically be trying to say, look, let's try to 
to educate people, but try to educate them and move towards a certain way. And personally, I think it's a good thing. I mean, that which declares my colors. I may be wrong. It may be that there's such a groundswell of opinion whipped up by the UK Independence Party, by other factions, that people will not look at the economic common sense. They'll go with an emotion. Because, let's face it, nobody's going to go into the details of the various European legislation. They're not going to go into the details of the European political court system. It'll be things about, does England stroke Britain stand sovereign if it is within Europe? It's going to be issues like immigration, which are going to be whipped up in service of whether trying to get us out of Europe. And that can sway some people. But I think I'll go in the, that, that just as in the 1970s, Britain came in, despite a very organized campaign at that point by the Labor Party mm. to resist the effort. They stay in this time. I just feel like I'm living in an alternate reality. I don't understand. I, both on the front of the Conservative Party conference and this whole Brexit debate, I don't... The, the sheer logistics, the damage, as you point out, economically, intellectually, um, and in terms of Britain's very real isolation, I, I really wonder about how that how that could all happen. And what makes me, I really wonder these parties that are vote that are um, encouraging a Brexit. Do they mean it? Do they really, really, really mean you it? Mean, you mean like UKIP? Yeah, or? but do, do they really mean it? Or are they just... They do have a kind of life's a game quality about yeah. them sometimes when they're talking that makes you... Feel like you're playing a little bit it. of Russian roulette. But um, mm. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit astounded by this discussion that it's even that it's even happening i understand the immigration stuff i understand the we need to keep our jobs for ourselves stuff but i just living where we do and coming from a country that is massively isolationist which is australia i don't understand how people could try and reimagine or try and uh, unpack themselves from their neighborhood mm. And it certainly seems like trying to get back to some good old days that on analysis probably don't merit that description. It's difficult to or know exist. what the era of, uh, of delightfulness is that people are going back to, towards. I mean, let's start by stipulating that I think I'm pretty well aware that I'm not the target market for the messaging endeavours of the Conservative Party. Um, you know, I think when we, when we look at what happened uh, last week, but I still think that, you know, I don't know if I was paying more attention this year or, or what it was, but it did seem like a real greatest hits of the objectionable and the tendentious, and in the case of Theresa May, I think the strategically malicious. Um, you know, and I was aggravated by the sense of easy confidence that seems to have uh, come to all of them in, in, in throwing yeah. out their propositions based on the assumption they're insulated uh, for a very long time from serious uh, electoral threats. And on, on the domestic agenda, uh, you, I think I, I slipped my views into the intro in a way that there's this uh, magical thinking disconnect between the articulation of the things that they want to achieve in the way of social equality and the fact that none of their policies remotely go near that and they're slashing anything that's necessary. Um, but so on a visceral level, on some level, it cheers me on a short sighted, personalized level. It cheers me to think that David Cameron at this moment of hubris and complacency might be on the very precipice of being laid low by uh, some kind of terrible reprise of 
what happened to John Major and basically took him from being uh, a prime minister with a successful election victory behind him to being a shadow of himself in a short period of time in office, but not but not in power. Um, but unfortunately, um, much as I might like to feel young again by the 1990s coming back, um, things are much more existentially serious for the EU and Britain's relationship now than they were then, I think. I mean, Geoffrey Howe died this week, the former Defence Secretary, Foreign Secretary, um, Chancellor of the, of the Exchequer, which gave me cause to go back and listen to his famous resignation speech from when he fell out with Mrs Thatcher and, and, and finally left her, her cabinet, in which he directly attacked her for her uncooperative attitude that she brought to her, her dealings with Europe. But that was back at a time when senior conservative figures were firmly of the view that Britain should be inside negotiations to bring about a European single currency, uh, of all things. And, you know, where, where are we now? Pretty much no one is in favour of that anywhere in front-bench politics, let alone in the Conservative Party. Uh, the Conservative Party has, in the 25 years since, basically purged its entire pro-European tendency, at least as it would have been recognised in those days, and the spectrum has, has, has totally moved, so that the once fringe position of wanting totally out of the European Union is now a respectable rump within the Conservative Party, and the pro-Tory wing, if that's what, or pro-European wing, which is, if that's what it is, represented by the likes of David Cameron, basically nods along at all the Eurosceptic critiques of Europe, but stops short of actually wanting out, which is, which is as close as you get. So I think, I mean, his plan, and Osborne's seems to be to go to Europe, pretend they're renegotiating something. They don't even really seem to want anything in particular. That's one of the baffling parts of this pantomime. They go, ask, what, what can you give us more than what do we want? Come back, pretend they've negotiated some kind of deal, then run this referendum and hope that they can avoid being the government that uh, left Europe and lost Scotland in, in, in the process. Um, but it's a dangerous game, because make no mistake, first of all, they might lose, and the consequences are huge, because this campaign will be vicious, and the media is very slanted against the European cause. Secondly, because if they think it's the right place, some serious figures may well decide to join this no campaign, and that will be ugly uh, and possibly consequential. And third, because we saw in Scotland, even losing a referendum doesn't necessarily end anything. You know, this whole uh, calculation about the referendum uh, comes from a calculation David Cameron made that he could get his internal critics off his back with a big gesture while being pretty confident that this would kill it all once and for all. But I don't think the evidence guarantees... Certainly the evidence shows that he hasn't got anyone off his back and killed the issue before the referendum. And I'm not even sure that the referendum, if the result is relatively close, is going to produce that kind of closure e either. So... I think more and more it seems like they've been playing with fire and maybe he will be remembered as a statesman who definitely managed a difficult moment in British public opinion, I don't know. But even he, if you asked him privately at this point, must be feeling like he's rolled the dice and he's basically waiting to see how it turns out. I, Like, like you, I'm sort of flabbergasted by the scope of the irresponsibility that could get us to this point, yet here we, here we are. There's, I, I appreciate the sort of the warning side of that. And I absolutely agree with all that. And to add to that, as well as Christella's bafflement, having been here 30 years, this, not British English, this insular nationalism, which despite a history which in fact looks outward and makes connections with other countries, sometimes negative, sometimes positive, this insular which is, we just will rely on ourselves, and usually that means white selves, and we'll listen to certain stirring patriotic music, and we have the Queen's head on the coins. Mm. And that is always okay, because that's what makes us English. It's been, I think, 
a hindrance, going all the way back to the 1940s when Winston Churchill made the pretense that Britain could stand between Europe and the Commonwealth and the U.S. and still be a great power. We have it in a different form now. We had it in the 1980s when Margaret Thatcher railed against Europe, if you remember. No, no, no. No, 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 but in the end, it was brought back in. In the 90s when the Maastricht rebels railed against Major, but were curved, we've got it again now, which is why I come back to the positive side of it. For all of that negative cultural insular movements, for all the fact that elements of the media feed off of that, for the possibilities of other issues like immigration, which is where the insular culture becomes poisonous in this country. In a bizarre way, I refer to that great scholar who actually got his heels working in the British Library, got his, uh, uh, his thoughts together in the British Library, Karl Marx. At the end of the day, the economics rules. You know, you come out of Europe... They should make that the poster, uh, just to get all the... Karl Marx's rules. Vote for Britain in Europe. At the end of the day... Better win them over. You come, out, you come out of Europe and London's gone as a financial center. Gone. You come out, service sector, financial sector... Britain was already down on its heels with the manufacturing sector. They're gone. I think that, combined with the second factor, is is that although I take the specter very seriously, at this point so far, when you have a no campaign, which basically has created two competing websites under two very hard-to-remember names. One of them, I think, is Vote Leave, which involved two different members of UKIP. From Marion's Unite. Yeah, exactly. I think basically the, the possibility for, Monty, for Pythonesque politics amongst the no campaign also gives me hope uh, at the end of the day. But I think at the end of the day, it, it, it comes back to economics and business. That's, that's what I'll stand on as a bedrock against your very well-taken points. I mean, I mean, unless we be accused of you know, ruling out wholly legitimate spheres of public debate, the EU is in many ways a highly dysfunctional organization, yeah. has many negative qualities. God knows we need to devote some time to critiquing it and suggesting ways that it could be made better and to do its business more effectively. That is not at issue. So if Euroscepticism means having a few thoughts in your head about the problems of the EU, then, you know, we're all of us Eurosceptics, I hope. The issue is, you know, what is your solution to that? And the Eurosceptic solution in its extreme form is that you take your ball and go home uh, and then build an iron fence around your home uh, while you're sitting in it with your ball. Made from construction drawn from the north of England. Right. Uh, and it, uh, you know, it, it just seems so impractical as a solution to some of the things they say they care about because you know, the EU is still going to be there. It's still going to set its rules. This mythical free trade area is going to still have all those rules imposed on Britain uh, if it's going to work with them. So I can't help thinking that those must be some kind of... Um, uh, layer over the top of what are really uh, identity-oriented concerns. Mm. Or there's something mm. there's something darker and, and less pleasant that represents, I think, the my, at least my least favourite part of the the British cultural soul that that is really uh, what's likely to, to 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 fuel this campaign. Because I just don't see that you could sit and look at the practicalities and come to the conclusion: yes, this is this is the wise and sober uh, way forward. Because you just don't get most of the benefits that it's claimed uh, that, that, that you're going to get from independence, uh, if that's even the right word. I think that's very astute, Adam, as an as a, as a, uh, insight, as, an, as, a, as a point. And as, as, a, as a tendentious as a thing, assertion. As a thing, <laughs> a thing that exists. And, and, you, and Scott has, has brought it out as well. But if that's the case, if it's about identity politics... And threats to identity and reshaping of identity, then, then what kind of discussions need to be had 
mm-hmm. and in what contexts to make people who are feeling threatened perhaps feel more secure or to, to address those kind of underlying identity issues, which are dark and deep and all of that, but are also mm-hmm. important to address. I guess is my final contribution here. Um, speaking as someone who's come into this country, as you may know from the outside, and again referring to England within Britain, I would hope this message could come across. Um, this country, unlike where I grew up, uh, has a range of cultures, ethnicities, groups, many of whom have come to in previous generations, and have settled here. They work here. The kids go to school here. They attend religious services here. They're in community organizations here. Uh, these are people who have come from the Caribbean, who have come from South Asia, who have come from North America, even a few Australians who came back the other way um, no. from the original migration, right? The odd Irish guy. And the odd Irish guy as well. The very odd Irish guy who comes in as well. They all walk into a bar. (laughs) Billy Bragg, the great English songwriter, tried to reclaim English identity by saying, look, the English flag should not be seen as a negative flag held by the British National Party, the English Defense League. He says you embrace the cross of St. George George, in the way that people say you should do, but you embrace it as an inclusive flag that embodies a lot of people with a lot of connections around the world who have chosen to settle here. It's not an exclusive flag that shuts people out. And the more that you bring people in, rather than shutting them out, that's part of what Europe said it was going to do after World War II, and that's part of what I hope England would say that it could do in the 21st century. I I hope so too. So we're agreed on Karl Marx and Billy Bragg as the two front people to win over the UKIP UKIP floaters for for, uh, for the ultimate referendum outcome. Excellent. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much for listening to us. You can find us, that is the podcast, at Poll World View on Twitter. I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me at Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, uh, which I guess means I got in pretty early on that bandwagon. I'm also Adam, at Adam James Quinn on Twitter, uh, which I don't use very much, but you're more welcome to find me there. My co-host have been Kristali Yakinthu. Where can people find you? You can find me at at Yakinthu, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U on Twitter. Got a monopoly on that one. Mm-hmm. Scott had to dart out of the room uh, to catch himself uh, uh, some emergency preparations for his trip abroad tomorrow, but I'm assured you can find him at Scott Lucas underscore E. And also, he would encourage you to visit eaworldview.com, his website. Our producer, as always, is Connor McKenna. You've been listening to us from the Pulsis Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We will be back very soon, and we very much hope you will be too. Bye.